Hey everybody, welcome back. This is episode two of the Chase Doesn't Know podcast. For this episode, I have on my friend and former high school teacher, Mr. Jesse Mulland. Uh, this conversation was very interesting. It was interesting to hear the teacher's perspective of the high school scene and what it was like uh, for him um, for dealing with kids from all different backgrounds inside the classroom and outside of the classroom. Um, and him being a young man, actually, at the time, in his early 20s, doing that. He's currently a full-time student, actually, ironically, going after his uh, EDD, which is basically just like a PhD. So we talked about that also for a good bit, what he's studying and the things that he's learning. Uh, I felt very inadequate and ill-prepared for this interview, so hopefully I don't stand in the way too much whenever you're listening to this. But it was a great conversation, and I uh, felt like I learned a lot and enjoyed hearing his perspective on things. So thanks again, Mr. Mullen, for your time, and to everyone out there, I hope you enjoy. Thank you again for driving out here and meeting me on a Saturday morning. Um, people who are listening will already know who you are. But why, um, why don't you tell me, and I already know who you are because I was a student of yours back in the day. But um, if you had to describe yourself in a couple of sentences, what would it be? Uh, well, first, my name is Jesse Moland. Uh, best description for me right now is a full-time doctoral student. Uh, basically spend every day reading and writing. It sounds very elementary, but uh, it's far from elementary. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I know you joined Instagram. Um, it was a few months now, probably. Yeah, ago. yeah, about two or three months. And I saw you pop up, and I was like, "Oh, sweet, I'm gonna follow Mr. Mullen." Yeah. And um, and pretty much everything you posted has just been like papers or notes or your computer screen. Right, right. My Instagram, <laughs> all it's going to be is my doctoral uh, work, either articles I'm reading, uh, research I'm doing, something I'm typing. Um, it, it's really kind of boring Instagram material, but it kind of keeps me focused. Uh, so I haven't posted in a while. I kind of think, have I done anything recently you know, that that's worthy of being posted? So it kind of makes me uh, stay active in what I'm supposed to be doing. Nice. Um, so I know most about you from our days at Bethany, you teaching and me a student, you a teaching and a coach and me a student. Um, I was going to ask you, cause you've kind of done, so you were, well, first of all, I want to know like how you got into that, how you got into teaching and cause you were a teacher slash administrator for a long time. Yeah. And then I remember a pretty cool, um, blog post slash medium article, I think that you put up. Um, after Bethany closed or changed about how you were kind of changing directions. So I definitely want to get into that and all the PhD stuff because I'm fascinated by people who are able to undertake such a, a big thing. Um, but go back to how you got into teaching, especially at Bethany. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a really crazy story. I, I think it's crazy. Uh, I actually graduated from Bethany. Uh, I went there most of my life. Um, and after I graduated, I wound up going to LSU. Uh, spent four years there working on my bachelor's, and I got that in computer engineering. And usually I tell people I got my bachelor's in computer engineering, and the first question is, well, why in the world did you teach? <laughs> uh, after, I, after I graduated, uh, I had a couple of friends that were being recruited by AMD, Intel, you know, big companies that are getting flown out and interviewed and everything. And my thought was, you know, I'm, I'm happy I got my degree, 
but I'm not looking to go into a mainstream corporate world right now. Uh, I was just going to hang in Baton Rouge and try to find something locally. Um, East Baton Rouge Parish School System was looking for a network supervisor. I uh, interviewed for that position. Uh, I was waiting to hear back from them. In the process, I got a call from Ms. Moe's at Bethany, one of my former teachers. And uh, she said she was looking for a physics teacher and asked if I'd come in for an interview. Well, I mean, fresh out of college, nothing to do. I was like, yeah, I'll go for an interview. So I showed up and walked into the office and she handed me my teaching schedule. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what? She was like, yeah, I think you'd be a really good fit. Let me show you your classroom here. Classic Miss Louis, right? <laughs> yeah, so uh, the principal at that time, Mr. Prentice, he was like, look, man, I don't know anything about you, but this lady says you'd be a great physics teacher. So, you know, I, I considered the offer, took it back home, prayed about it, and I was waiting. I told them, you know, get back with them in a few days. And whenever I called them back, you know, I was like, you know, I'll, I'll take the job. Well, the next day, East Baton Rouge Parish called me to offer me the network supervisor position. Wow. And I told the man, I said, you know, you're a, a day too late, I took the job. He said, well, what would you be doing? I said, I'll be a teacher. And he said, that's, that's, a, that's a really good job. It's a good decision. I'm, I'm happy for you. So, yeah, that was good grief. 19 years ago now. Really? Uh, 2000? Yeah. So uh, I did that. I wound up coaching volleyball, a sport I'd never played before. Uh, the, the former coach left, and I taught some of the players in my computer class. And they were like, can you coach volleyball? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. So apparently they went to tell Mr. Prent uh, Mr. Prentice, and the next day he said, hey, Heard you want to coach volleyball. I was like, what? No, no. But I did. Uh, so, yeah, I coached volleyball for 10 years. Eventually picked up track. I uh, did track for about four years. I had one track in high school, so that was, that was a little bit better. But uh, Had experience in that one. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that, that, that was it. That was teaching, education. That was about 18, 19 years. Cool. So when did you, when did you leave? Oh, well, I left Bethany uh, after the flood in 2016. Uh -huh. uh, I taught for that year uh, when we merged with CLA. Then I spent one year at the Church Academy. So um, May 18 was my, my official last last time as a teacher. Gotcha. Cool. What's, uh, what's like, um, I've always kind of uh, had the thought like it would be fun to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. um, mainly it would be fun. I was kind of thinking it'd be fun to be like a college professor more so than I guess a high school teacher. Mm -hmm. um, would you, what would you tell, I mean, to somebody who thinks it would be fun to be a teacher? Oh, uh, it's not fun. <laughs> uh, it, no, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of dedication and sacrifice if you do it right. And if you are doing it right, it's enjoyable. Uh, for me, the most enjoyable thing is the opportunity to see progress. Uh, it doesn't have to be, oh, well, this student, you know, they made straight A's and everything, but if I can see any type of progress and knowing that I made any type of impact in their life, uh, to me, that that's what makes it enjoyable. Um, I was actually, my wife and I were cleaning out our office at home, and I have a box, a banker's box, and it is full of 18 years worth of thank you notes, things that students left on my desk, 
got graduation invitations, wedding invitations, college graduation, all, all sorts of things. And I was just going back and looking through it. And I was like, wow, you know, that's, that's the impact. Yeah. And that, that's what made the, the, the long nights all worth it. Mm -hmm. All the dedication, all the sacrifice, seeing the impact that, that, that made it worth it. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, um, I hear I hear a lot like nowadays, especially there's kind of like the sentiment of the public schools are bad type thing, and uh, teachers are overworked, and uh, there's just a lot of thoughts about like education in general. And I feel like especially kind of around our area, what's your what's your take on some of that? Like, how do you how do you, what do you think the school system could benefit the most from? Oh uh, well, I'll start by saying yes, public schools are bad. And private schools are bad. <laughs> uh, every every school is bad. Every school is good. I mean, it, it's all perspective. Uh, you could go into a failing school and you could find at least one teacher that is working hard, is making an impact, and is doing a great job. You can go into the quote-unquote best school in the area and find a teacher that's slacking off, not doing their job, you know, so it's it, it's all really subjective. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there's good and bad everywhere. Uh, as far as teachers being overworked, yeah, they are. Uh, that's part of the field. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of difficult to say, but if a teacher's not overworked, they probably aren't giving their all. Mm -hmm. Because I would think that anybody that is a leader or an expert in their particular field, they overextend themselves. And your really, really good teachers overextend themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that that's right or that's good? No. You know, there's there's lots of teacher burnout now. Uh, you know, we have good teachers that are just, I, I can't do this anymore. Uh, I saw this teacher on Twitter, they were doing their taxes and they said they spent over $2,500 of their own personal money, you know, buying technology, supplies, just things that they needed in order to make an impact on their students. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's rough. It's, it's a tough, tough profession. Um, the pay is not, not the best. The hours are not the best, but if that's why you're doing it, then you probably need to find something else to do. That's not an excuse. Uh, I mean, teacher pay does need to increase, benefits and all need to increase but that can't be the motivation. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, you know, when I found that box uh, of things in my office, that was motivation. I didn't realize it in that moment while I was doing it, but looking back, you know, it made it all worthwhile. Yeah, so when you started, you you, um, you had like opportunity to do it. What, what was like the first year or two like being thrown in? Because how old were, we, were you when you started teaching? Uh, 21. 21. And you're teaching like 16, 17 year olds. Well, I had 18 year olds. 18 year olds. Yeah. So what was the first couple of years like for you? Probably not the best pay, crazy hours, I'm sure. And then like kids who are probably rowdy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the first piece of advice that I got uh, was don't smile until Christmas. You heeded that advice. I Which, and, and, and really, I mean, that's just my nature anyway. So I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. But what I really took away from that was I had a job to do. Um, even though I was close in age, I had knowledge and experience that my students didn't have. 
and I wasn't there to be their friend. Mm -hmm. But I noticed even the first year and moving on from there, the more I adhered to that and was like, I am not their friend. I'm here to impart something to them that drew the students to me. And I would see the teachers that tried to be the students' friends, they got walked over. Um, it was it was rough uh, because I was teaching physics, geometry, had a couple of computer classes, had a Bible class. And so my average day was I would teach, go home, eat, rest a little bit, and I'd be up until 12, one, two o'clock sometimes, actually studying mm -hmm. in order to prepare for the next day's lesson. Because it's, it's one thing to know information, but right. if you don't know the information to be able to disseminate it to somebody else, well, what good is that? Right. So I was literally studying every night to stay ahead of my students, which really benefited me later on because it, it got to the point where I had pretty much everything memorized and it wasn't, okay, I'm trying to learn this. It was okay, well, is there a better way that I can present this information uh, to the students? So, yeah, it was a lot of long nights. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, a lot of long nights. Well, what, what was it that, like, I mean, kept you going in it? I mean, what was it that that you felt like it was either worth it to stay up and do this, or you just, was there something you just felt like, this is what I'm supposed to do? What was it that, because, I mean, you, you know, into computer engineering and then, becoming a high school teacher and like I said, I mean, high schoolers aren't the greatest people on earth. <laughs> Both of us having been one of them, I'm sure you can agree, yeah, but yeah. what, what is it that made you want to continue to do that? I mean, you know, through all of the, I'm sure struggles, but. Well, part of it for that, at least for that first year was I signed a contract. Okay. And yeah, that I, I, I believed, I believe in my word. And if I say I'm going to do something, if I've committed to it, I'm going to do it. Uh, and I'm not just going to do it to get by. I'm going to strive to be the best at what I do whenever I do it. And whenever I stop doing it, well, okay, that, that time is gone. But in, in the midst of it, through the process, I committed to that year and I wanted to be the best at what I did for, for that year. It just happened to turn into two years and three years and four years and, you know, finally 18 years. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was it's just the desire to whatever I'm doing, be the best in it at that time. How do you teach that to kids to be to be their best? Uh, partly you demonstrate it. Um, there would be days where I would be in class and I would feel bad. Of course, staying up late every night, you know, whatever. But not ever stopping. Uh, there was one student, I won't call her name, you, you might know her. Every single day in class, she'd say, Mr. Mullen, can we have a free day? And I'm like, no, we cannot have a free day. We're going to work every day. Can you have a free day today? No, yeah. we're, we're working. We're working today. I I always, the like the first day of a school year, we would always, I would always remember, like almost every year, even through college, first day, I'm always like, I don't want to go back to school. First day is going to be cool. We're just going to get, you know, like a syllabus, talk about what we're going to be doing. It's going to be an easy day. Yeah. And the first day in your physics class, everyone who took it will know that you have a paper to do the very first day. Yeah. And is it is it due the, the week later? Was yeah, it a week? Usually a week. A week, yeah. yeah. So you're not joking around. No, no. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think you would say, even though 
it was maybe rough or difficult in the beginning, you enjoyed it. It, it not not just the physics, but the the structure, the lessons. I, I think it it was beneficial for not just college, but you know, life in general. Mm-hmm. Because there will be times where you just want to ease into something, and it's like, here you go, start doing it. It's like, wait, wait, no. oh, I signed up for this. Well, I've I've got to got to do it. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, and not just because you're sitting here, but you definitely your classes were definitely some of my favorite, mainly because they were informative and informational but they you know you know you knew what you had to do and it wasn't going to be an easy thing but if you did it well and you felt you could really feel accomplishment going through it um which especially the first paper because like i actually remember doing it doing that first that paper that was assigned the first day and being like how how do we even how and it was on physics the first day of your physics class you have to write on physics what is exactly and so i'm like how in the world does he expect us to do this but then do a little work and then turn in a paper a week later and felt good about writing something on physics even though you had nothing you did not know about physics which is something that's pretty cool um i was going to ask you earlier actually when you were talking about um classes and getting ready for kids and all that sort of stuff what is it to have a class of 30 18 year olds like and walking into the class how do you even have enough authority to to go into something like that oh i mean what what is it i mean like know your stuff and i guess not smile before christmas is a good is a good tip but i mean there's like Especially nowadays, too, and we, we were at Bethany, which I guess, you know, some people would say, you know, air quotes, it's a little less rough than some of the public schools. But I know a few people who came from Bethany and then taught in public schools and said that sometimes it gets crazy. And then you hear all these stories about, you know, kids who don't have the same upbringing slash home life that do certain things that are unexpected. What... So I, I don't know even what I'm asking, but I'm curious to know from the teacher's perspective, looking at a class of 18-year-olds, how is that? How is that? Uh, it was different. That, 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 that's the, the best word I can say. Uh, of course, knowing that everybody is close to my age, um, knowing that most everybody was close to my size, <laughs> at, at, definitely at, at that time. Um, you you have to have a confidence uh, like like i said you know it was kind of a joke that they said don't smile but you have to have a confidence and you have to demonstrate that you know who you are and you know why you're there and you know what you're doing and it doesn't matter if anybody else does doesn't matter if anybody else says you have a job to do uh, i had a situation uh, at tca last year where uh, I had a class that was all students, I say 95% students, who were either from CLA or or, or TCA. And later on in the year, we were talking and they said, you know what, Mr. Mullen, we thought we were gonna run you out. That that, that was our goal. We've Mm -hmm. run off so many teachers. And I said, okay. And they're like, see, that's it, you just don't. It's like, ah. And I said, well, I said, why didn't y'all run me off? Why am I still here? And the thing that they said was, you care about us. We know that you care about us. And I never walked in class and said, you know what, students, I really care about you. (laughs) 
And in fact, it was quite the opposite. Uh, one of the first things I say in my math class is I have the students raise their hand if they don't like math. And of course, the majority of the class raised their hand. And I said, well, I don't care. I said, because when I was in high school, I didn't like math either, but here I am teaching it. And everybody's like, oh, what? Oh man, no. But it was just that, that attitude from the beginning of, you know what? What you're going through is hard. I'm here to help you. It's going to be difficult, but I'll walk with you. And it was not saying that I cared about them, but demonstrating that I cared about them. Mm. Uh, I would have I would have students, and they probably shouldn't have, but I would have students leave out of class to come to my office just to talk. They were they were going through things at home. There were tough situations that these students were going through, but they would find me because they knew that I cared. I never said, come talk to me. I, I never said, I want to hear about your problems. They identified me as somebody that cared genuinely about them. And that's really what students are looking for, regardless of their home life, regardless of the problems that they're going through. They just want somebody that cares. And if they find that in a teacher, you know, that, that's even better since you know, I'm spending eight hours a day with them, you know, oftentimes more than their parents do. So it's, it's just, it's really just that caring, knowing you have a job to do and caring, not just saying you care, but demonstrating that care. Mm -hmm. what, what is it, how, how do you, would you say that, uh, well, first of all, I guess, would you say that that is an appropriate role for teachers to do? Would you say that's maybe certain type of teachers that uh, should be that caring, I guess, towards students and offer that sort of I mean, I guess some sort of like, you know, not counseling, but being a, being a friend in a in an older, wise um, mentor type of way. Yeah. Was what what is it? Because I'm sure there's teachers out there that want to do that, but maybe they're uh, maybe they they don't feel like they have the inroads. I mean, you did it. You were a teacher for 18 years. You saw. I mean, that's that's four life cycles of student of high school students. Uh, four times four is 16. That's right. I can still do math. <laughs> and uh, the, so what is it that I guess like should all teachers kind of strive for not only bringing the information, but also like, quote unquote, I guess air quotes again, being there for students? Or is that something that you think maybe only certain teachers should do? I think in the classroom, you have to be there for the student because students will struggle. And being there for the student doesn't mean that you know everything that's going on in their lives. I mean, that, that wasn't the case for me with all of my students, but being there means, well, this student is struggling. Let me help them. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of kids don't even get that, mm -hmm. you know, and that's what can help develop a relationship. Every, every student at every school needs to know they have at least one person at that school that cares about them, that, can advocate for them that even if they fail that person will still will still be there for them but some some schools might have a teacher that that's one student and that's good they're reaching out to them other teachers might have dozens of students but i get concerned whenever there's one teacher that no student has any type of connection with um, oftentimes students that connected with me they weren't the best in, in my class so naturally, I had to work with them more in order to help them. And it was through that they understood, well, you know what? I might have failed this test, but Mr. Mullen really does care. Mr. Mullen, he's going to work with me. 
Okay, well, okay, I'm getting better, I'm getting better, I'm getting, I'm getting better. Um, you know, but obviously, you know, in today's society, there are bounds. Um, all of my female students would tell you, I had a shroud, don't touch me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it was, no, you can't get a hug. All, all the girls knew I would not hug them until they graduated. Mm -hmm. And they would walk across the stage, get their diploma, and then afterwards when their parents are there, <laughs> all the family's there, I would give them a little side hug. You know, it was, it was just the thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have boundaries like that, but even through all of that, they knew he, he really does care. What, what do you, uh, do you ever have like thoughts? I mean, cause sitting in a class of 30 kids, everyone's different backgrounds, everyone's different academic levels, skill levels, understanding levels. Um, do you ever have, um, is there ever like a, have you ever had a thought of like, this kid's really struggling, I feel terrible for him, can't do anything for him. How do you handle something like that? Cause I, cause I know like for me going through school, I, I like I always did pretty good in high school and like, it, you know, it wasn't, I didn't really have to put a lot of effort into it, which I think also then when I got to college, you know, had like a lot more work to do. And so I kind of have a hard time relating with some kids who have to put forth a lot of effort in their, in their studies. So I'm curious to see what your observation of, of those people were. Uh, I like to know why. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some students that struggle because they don't put forth any effort. Mm -hmm. And honestly, they will be treated completely different from a student who is struggling because there's an actual problem or issue. Uh, if I had a student that was struggling because they wouldn't work, they wouldn't put forth the effort, I'd let them know it. And as wrong as it might sound, I wouldn't help them until they put forth mm -hmm. an effort. And that was to help encourage them. Well, things aren't just going to be handed to them. A student that had an issue, whether it was diagnosed dyslexia or it could even be having problems at home, you know, how, how that affects uh, students. I would bend over backwards in order to help them. Uh, I mean, time after school, you know, during lunch, whatever it would take to be able to help them. So whenever you're looking over a class of 30 kids, it's it's all these different things that are going on, even as, as you're teaching. Okay, this student's not paying attention. Well, I've learned over the course of the year that they never pay attention. That's the way they do. They're going to make A's. They're not paying attention to what I say. But whenever we're working, they're going to work mm -hmm. in some kind of way they just get it. So the kid over here, he's not paying attention Okay, something's going on. I've got to figure out what it is. This per kid here, he's paying attention, but he's not getting, not getting it. it. And this other kid, he's paying attention. He's not getting it. And he's not going to say he's not getting it. So I'll have to actually approach him and say, hey, you've got to do this. Or, hey, what's going on with this? So, I mean, just right there, that's four individuals. Right. And so it's, it's all this information that's coming in to me about who I'm dealing with as I'm giving out information, it, it's, it's a lot to what do you, consider. What do, you what do you think, like, I mean, that's, a, and that's four, four kids, let's say, and, and I know some people talk about there's 30, 40 kids in, in normal high school classes even. Is that even, should we be doing education differently? I mean, can you expect a, a teacher to handle that sort of thing? I, I, I think the data would say, yes, we should do education differently. Um, There's so many schools of thought. There are so many 
different ways to approach it. I think that's part of the problem. Nobody really knows where to start. Uh, yes, if you have smaller, smaller size classes, you can have more individual attention and reach students better. But if you have a teacher that doesn't know what they're doing, it doesn't matter how small the class is, actually that might even be worse mm -hmm. because they're able to in inflict more damage <laughs> on, on those kids, you know? So it's, whether you're looking at teacher preparation programs, you know, if you're starting to look at, well, what's the cause curriculum actually teaching teachers? Uh, should there be more uh, psychology? Should there be more leadership techniques in addition to content? Uh, one, one opinion I've always held, and uh, it's kind of unpopular in some circles, I think some of your best teachers are people that never planned on being teachers. Mm -hmm because oftentimes they have the content knowledge very, very strongly. And it's easier to then go back and teach them pedagogy and how to handle students in class and different things like that. And I'm not knocking people that have a degree in teaching. I mean, my master's degree is in, is in education. But if the focus is on how do we educate students? And the person knows how to educate a student, but they don't actually have the content knowledge. That's detrimental to the students. So there, there has to be there has to be this balance. You know whether or not it's in our education programs, we spend more time shoring up the content of the teachers, or if we do a better job of bringing in people who have the content knowledge, and training them to be teachers. Like I said, there, there's no magic bullet. There's no, this is the one way to do it. Because I, I know some people that have degrees in education, they are the best teachers. Some people that have the content knowledge can't teach anybody. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's so many variables that, that go into it. Um, it's, it's like, where do we start? Mm -hmm. Well, we, we have to find one place and every school needs to have the ability to determine what's best for them. Uh, I think it's very hard. You're saying this is mandate. This is the way that it has to be. No. Yeah, I think I think I kind of uh, I've changed a little bit uh, um, since I got out of school. Um, I think on my opinion of education or how education works, because I kind of am similar to what how you just the way you just articulated it is this is the way it's done. This is what you got to learn. And I kind of naively assumed, I guess, that, you know, to get good grades, you got to learn this stuff and do it well. And then this is how you do it. And if you don't do it, then you're not going to do well. But I mean, and this might lead into some of what you're working on right now, but um, from my basic understanding of what you're working on right now, which is basically none. But um, what is it? I mean, can you teach everyone the same way to get the information to them? Uh, that's probably not a great question, but what is it that would, I guess, enable all students to succeed at the highest level possible when they're in school? Because I hear a lot about, uh, even between like boys and girls, like girls are more naturally inclined to sit in a class and listen and, you know, not interrupt or um, not be get restless sitting for hours a day and then the general stereotype is boys are 
it, they can't sit more than five minutes and they have to get up and do stuff with their hands and that sort of thing. I mean, how, how is that? Should we try, try to do something like that to make education more effective? And, and if we can, like, oh, that, that, I know that's it's like so, a large question. It, it, I just had a, I had a fleeting thought of, of, of like, I'm interested to hear, I guess, how, like you mentioned earlier, you're, you're teaching information and you just are collecting all of these different ways people are accepting it. But I mean, as I know as long as school's been around, it's still done the same way. Like I, yeah. I haven't seen too much change. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, they, they've been integrating technology more into it, which is, I think what you're working kind of delving into, yeah. but it's still 95% classroom chalkboard type scenario. Yeah, it's, I, I think the, the biggest thing that, that would help, and it, it's not an idea that I've completely worked out, just thinking about it, you know, right here, but options. You, you need options. Uh, and then again, you don't need options. It, it's, it's so, it's so <laughs> yeah. I mean, or you have Raisin Canes. They have chicken. Yeah. That's all they have, and they do it well. Mm-hmm. Well, you can have a school like Raisin Canes. But if you have students that go there that hate chicken, that's the worst school for them. Right. Okay. So you do need to have some schools that are specialized and are tailored and they attract a certain clientele and that is the school for them. Then you need to have another school that has hamburgers, just, just say, and people that enjoy hamburgers can go there. But with the options, I think that a lot of schools are trying to be a buffet. Mm-hmm. And a big problem with a buffet is you have things that sit for a long time, that get stale, and it's not really good. You can have a meal from a buffet. You can have a meal from a restaurant. It's probably going to taste better at the restaurant if that's what they do. So the idea of a school trying to be all things to all people I think naturally will lead to problems. Um, instead of having a school like that, you need to have multiple schools that each are tailored towards something. Not saying you have a school for athletes and school for musicians, but build your school so that you can focus on what you do well. And some people might say, well, that means that students have to choose. And if they choose the wrong school, they're getting boxed into the, mm-hmm. you no, know, we're, we're, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, I think if you have a, a basic agreement on this is what every young person needs in order to be productive in society and every school agrees on that and teaches that. And then on top of that, when you start looking at your electives and methodologies and things like that, you have different schools that are able to focus in on, on different things. Um, and Carlo talks about mission. Every school needs to have a mission. And that mission determines what your vision is. And that vision determines your goals and objectives and how you're, how you're going to do it. If your mission is we want to teach all students while that's a worthy goal. Noble goal, but... That's a very, very huge mission. And then you realize, oh, we have these students that have these special needs. We've got to do... Oh, well, these students students excel here. Okay, well, we got these athletes over here. We need to do this for them. And then you take that mission 
and you just start expanding and then you look back and you're not doing anything well. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you could have a mission that's so narrow that you're only serving two or three people. That, that, that That's why the issue is so so large because we're looking at an entire right. system, an entire educational system that is failing because mission, vision, goal, things are not aligned. Mm -hmm. Some of the most successful, according to the data, school systems are ones that separated from a larger system, established their own mission, and begin working. But then if you begin to track them, you'll see as they begin to grow and get larger, they start to fall off mm. as well. So you need to have this constant adjusting of the mission and being sure that you really are able to serve the people that, that you're reported to serve. What do you think about the, um, some of these charter schools that are around town nowadays? I hear that I hear a lot of positive things about them and how they're performing. There are a lot of positives about a lot of charter schools. There are a lot of negatives about a lot of charter schools. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're all different. Uh, I think it's very difficult to just clump them all together because every school, even in a charter system, every school is unique. Mm -hmm. Every school is going to have their own, their own leader. And that leader is going to shape and mold that school after them. Um, so let's let's play a quick, quick game then. Okay. Let's say you're starting a school tomorrow. How, how are you going to set up your school? I'm curious to know. The way I'm going to set up my school is I'm going to find people that know what they're doing and let, let them do it. <laughs> um, you know, I would, I would have to not start my school tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I would need to take time to really come up with my mission. And my mission could not be that I want to educate students to make them the best and most productive people in society. I need to know who I want to reach. And I don't want to say, I just want to reach all kids. Mm -hmm. No, well, you're being picky, you're being selective. Well, in that selectivity, there's strength and there's power. Now, is it being exclusive? No, it's really being inclusive. Because by being able to select the clientele that I need, I can best meet their needs. Now, what needs to happen is somebody needs to ensure that every possible person has that option. What we don't want is for everybody to say, okay, well, I want these things. Okay, I want these. Okay, well, I'll take this group over here. And then you have a big chunk of society that people are like, I don't want to deal with them. Mm -hmm. Well, no, we, we can't have that. But we need to have everybody included. And so whether it's a public school system that realizes, you know what? We need to focus on this neighborhood and we're going to reach this neighborhood. That's what schools used to do anyway. Mm -hmm. They were neighborhood based and they would meet the needs of that neighborhood. So it's very difficult whenever you start having a big central organization that's trying to control everything hands on. We definitely need oversight. We definitely need, you know, rules and, and, and boards of governance. But we need the ability to have mission at a school which guides everything. So, so yeah. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not starting my school. <laughs> He's not going to start a school. You're, you're an administrator, though, at Bethany, for 
a while. Is that, is that right? Yeah. When did you start doing that? How many years had you been teaching whenever you went into that? Officially, I don't know. <laughs> it was um, kind of like a migration type thing. Yeah, it, it just kind of happened yeah. where all of a sudden it's like I'm in a meeting and I'm like, why am I in this meeting? <laughs> then it's like, I would try to leave. No, you need to stay. Oh, I do. You know, so uh, it was almost kind of like I got into teaching. It was just like, oh, here I am doing these things now, doing this on top of teaching and this and that. So yeah, I, I'd say in, in some sort of capacity, 10 years or so okay administrative responsibilities yeah. not not to get too much in the weeds that might not be super interesting for some people to hear but i'm interested to know what it what it was like being kind of because you're you're in, in the middle somewhat because you're over teachers as an administrator but then under whatever the governing body is which I, this i guess is that was the church but how was that like managing things that were coming down from the top and then having to worry about all these teachers who, like you said earlier, some of them might be doing a great job and some of them might not be doing so great. Uh, it's, it's always difficult dealing with your peers mm -hmm. um, because there, there's a level of respect and camaraderie you have with them. Then there also comes a point where, okay, but you're not doing what needs <laughs> to be done. You need to straighten, straighten this out. But also, you know, receiving that same thing from my administrator, hey, you're doing you're not doing a good job of this. You need to straighten, straighten this out. Uh, it, it was just a, a balancing act. Um, and a, a flipping act as well, because, you know, it, being in administration while still teaching, I mean, I was still teaching five, six classes a day and then administrative duties on top of that. So, you know, let's get back to my office. Okay, am I going to grade these tests or am I going to go do an observation or am I going to get this report done that I need to do? You know, it was a, a constant, constant juggling act. Hmm. Um, I had one more question before I want to get into what you're working on your PhD for, uh, for, but what, how much do you think that a kid's home life has to do with their school, not performance, but school experience? Um, more than people probably realize. Because okay. I've only seen it from the student side because I've never been a teacher. But now I've been working with kids for a few years now uh, in the church capacity. And I can definitely see um, the difference. And, and the funny thing is some kids that have a terrible home life or there's a lot of positive things about them that you might not expect. And then some kids that have a quote-unquote great home life there's uh, negative things that tend to overpower the positive. So I'm curious this to hear from your experience and all the kids that you interacted with, what you kind of gleaned from that. Oh, for some kids, school is the best part of their day, not because they are great students or they enjoy, you know, all the things about it, but because it's safe. Mm -hmm. uh, they look forward to coming to school because they get away from their home life. Um, there were some students I could tell how their home life was based on their reaction in the morning. Mm -hmm. I could tell if they had fought with their parents or their parents on the way to school. Um, I could I, I could see it. You know, uh, there would literally be some students when it was test day. I would actually go to them so you can take your test tomorrow because I could tell that something had happened at home that just totally, totally rocked their world. 
but unfortunately for them, it was normal, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, being able to pick up on things like that uh, and also being able to pick up on the students who had the supposed perfect home life, but realizing that it was really just a show, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it's, it's, it's one thing to, as an adult, have to do your job when things are, are not perfect. But for a student under the pressures of school and also under the pressures of home, uh, I mean, dealing with students who come to school and they're crying and you find out they had a relative that just got shot and killed and they're at school. Uh, you're dealing with kids who they feel the weight of literally trying to be the financial support for their family because of things that things that are going on. I mean, I'm not just making these, these are actual things that, that, I've, that I've dealt with. And, you know, okay, so, you know, now do the quadratic formula and, and solve for X. Well, <laughs> this, this kid is thinking about, should I go and try to sell drugs to make some money because we don't have any food to eat. How, how, do, you, how do you even start to handle that? I mean, as a teacher, I know you have to feel some sort of burden um, for that. But how how do you like? I mean, what's the approach? I mean, you kind of you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier. Yeah. Um, but I mean, those specific situations that ninety eight percent of people would have no idea about, and you kind of can see what's happening. What do you do? Really and truly, I I think you have to understand that you really can't handle it. Um, and that you can't solve it. That's not your place, that's not your position, that it's not right for you to do that. Mm. But you can be there with them. Um, if necessary, things need to be reported to you know authorities. Things need to be reported to parents. In some instances, uh, I mean, I've had kids, please don't tell my, please don't tell my parents. You, you realize that, you know, you you threatened to kill yourself. You know this needs, but all 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 kinds of you know crazy things. I I had one student, you know their their parents are dealing with health issues, and you know no they didn't want to tell anybody because they didn't want anybody to treat them differently. So I mean that was something I could keep to myself, but that turned into. You know, every time that I would see the student, hey, how's it going? Okay, well, yeah, well, they've got this doctor's appointment coming up. They've got this going on. And it wasn't intrusive. It wasn't, hey, y'all, guess what? Such and such has, you know, this issue. It was just, man, Mr. Mullen asked me about, you know, my parent. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you know, there, there, are, there are people that, that care. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's, it's realizing I, I knew I, I, couldn't, I couldn't solve the problems for the kids, um, but I could... I could just help them some mm-hmm. some kind of way, right? That, and that, that's kind of life too, I guess. I mean, life's not easy, and not you can't all. you can't fix every situation. But being authentic and <clears throat> being there for people makes all the difference. Um, kind of segueing, we've been like talk deep into some of the harder stuff, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with kids and dealing with school. Uh, mainly because I was curious. I'm also curious about what your thoughts on AI are. <laughs> <laughs> that is a segment. Uh, AI is here. Uh, AI is not 
going away. Um, but it's 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 a it's a it's a tricky ground. Uh, tying it into education, I've seen a, a lot of companies are trying to use it to kind of be that uh, really to to be what the teacher should be. You know, I see what you're doing. Okay, let me let me adjust and let me meet this need. Okay, well you're doing this now. Let me adjust and let me do that. You know, AI can can do that a, a, a lot easier one-on-one, obviously, than, mm-hmm. than a teacher can. But um, it, it's, it's it's almost like a, a cliff, and people are jumping off this cliff very, very quickly mm-hmm. without walking to the edge and seeing what am I really getting into. Mm-hmm. What have you seen that's um, fun about it, exciting about it? AI stuff. I don't know. I don't know how much you are like into it. I was curious because I know you have a computer background and all that. Yeah, a, a little bit. My readings have kind of strayed away from that um, recently. Um, I I know there are a lot of colleges that are beginning to incorporate AI into not all, but a lot of their curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas, okay, so I'm getting a degree in business. Well, I've got to take these classes on AI to see how AI is now influencing business. Okay. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of an, an incorporation that, that I'm seeing, not necessarily just, oh, AI, 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 but, well, how does AI apply in my particular field? And I think a lot of your leaders are the ones that are seeing how it can be used in different fields and not just, oh, we have AI for the sake of AI. Mm-hmm. Um, so what have you been working on since you stopped teaching? I, we, we met in, an air, in the Baton Airport randomly one day, yeah. both flying out to different places, and we talked for like a few minutes. Um, and like I said, I had I'd known you had been doing this since your, the article you wrote and your Instagram and stuff, but we talked about it a little bit. And sounded really interesting, so I'm curious to hear. I guess actually, first of all, I want to know what the whole process is to get a PhD. Yeah, so uh, I started in the fall of 2016. Um, I'm working on my EDD. Uh, just a slight difference. PhD is very philosophy doctorate. Um, EDD's educational doctorate. Okay, oh, I, I didn't even know that. Yeah. I'm a dummy. So. No, no, no. <laughs> you, you have people, even in the academic community, that say, well, you, well, PhDs are better than EDDs, EDDs are better, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Basically, just to put it in layman's terms, PhD is very, very, uh, what's, what's the best way I can say this? Um, it's kind of looking at the underpinnings of something. Well, this is what's going on here. And well, this kind is of theoretical uh, type. Yeah, okay. very much so. And whereas in EDD, it's kind of turning more now into a degree of practice okay. where you're actually able to take your research and apply it to a specific problem. Whereas with a PhD, you just have this wealth of knowledge that hopefully can be applied uh, okay. to, a, to a particular problem. So the, you're basically saying the PhD is the pretentious one. 
Is that what you're saying? I am not saying that because my wife has a PhD, so I would I would not I would not say that. But it, it's 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 a little it's a little bit different where the EDD is more uh, designed for you know a, as I say a problem of practice, okay. like a concrete objective type right idea. Um, yeah. But then again, in my program, even though it is an EDD, we adhere more so to the the strategy, research strategies and methodologies of uh, of the PhD. Cool. For the most part. So you started in the fall of 16. Yeah. It's now the last time I checked, February 2019. Yeah, hopefully I have uh, two years left. Uh, that's that's the main thing I think that fascinates me about the um, higher education, the higher, higher, higher education mm -hmm. uh, process is that there's a ton of work involved and a ton of time put into it and I and there's actually a time limit oh there's a time limit you have seven years from the day that you start I otherwise you pretty much forfeit everything that you've done wow yeah. okay uh, so I, I take classes um, that's the easy part mm. uh, my my program at Oral Roberts it's uh, modular so we have our actual class in person is two and a half days like eight to five pretty much every day, but then there's also an online component that we have. Uh, so it really is designed for working professionals, you know, to be able to get away on the weekend and attend a class, and then you have tons and tons of, of work to do. But basically every class is you read a whole bunch and then you <laughs> write a whole bunch more. Uh, and that, that sounds really, really simple, but, it, but it's not. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I used to think when I was in school that, you know, a 10-page paper, oh my goodness, that's so hard. I now, that. now it's like I sneeze and, oh, it's a 10-page paper. I wow. just sneeze one out. It's really easy. Um, so, yeah, I, I take classes. I have, uh, I think, about five or six classes left. Uh, two of them are research design classes. Uh, so, And are they, in this, in this structure, the classes, are they a semester long? Technically, no. Uh, they count for a semester long, but we have uh, two and a half days of class and then about five or six weeks of online work after okay. that. Gotcha. Uh, so, I mean, you can still take three classes, you know, fall or spring semester and, and two in the summer. Um, so, in, in the process of taking all these classes, in comes the big thing that distinguishes a doctoral program from everything else, and that's the dissertation, mm -hmm. which basically is your life work. Um, you basically pick a topic, and you become an expert in that topic, and you how write are, a book. How on earth do you pick a topic? Well, what is your EDD going to be in, first of all? It's an educational leadership okay. with a concentration in higher education administration. Okay. And then have you picked your dissertation topic? I've picked it, yes. Okay. Is is now about the time you should have picked it, or do you pick that at the beginning of the if, if process? You, if you pick it at the beginning of your process, you're gonna change it. You you're no, you're you're really really good. Oh. If you okay. pick it at the very beginning. Okay. I was kind of close. Uh, it's kind of morphed a little bit. Uh, just the short, sweet, and simple version is my topic is the digital divide. Okay. That's yes. Yeah. This is uh, that's I, just you mentioned the this to me. Okay. Yeah. So. How on earth do you pick a topic? <laughs> uh, you need to pick something that is interesting to you okay. because you're going to spend four, maybe five or six years 
studying this one topic. And so if you dislike the topic, you're not going to, you're not going to do well in the process. So you have to pick a topic. You have to decide how you're going to study your topic because in your dissertation, you have to develop a study and perform the study, but it cannot just be any type of study. It has to be a study that has not been done before. You have to contribute something to the educational community, to the body of work that nobody else has contributed before. Mm-hmm. So it's really bad if you have a topic that you love and you start proceeding and then you find two years ago somebody did a dissertation like what you want to do. That's really going to suck for people in like 200 years. Yeah. And so then you're <laughs> like, well, I can either change my topic or I can change the approach that I have to my topic and look at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So all those are possibilities. So I have my topic. Um, since I stopped teaching, I have been collecting and reading articles like crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I officially came up with the digital divide as my topic in, I want to say April of 2017. Mm-hmm. That's one of my Instagram posts, uh, the actual article that I read for another class. And I was like, this sounds really interesting. So from that point forward, I've really just been collecting articles and reading. Um, like I said, since May, I have collected probably close to 250 articles wow. uh, just in about the divide in different methodologies. And when you say articles, this is not like what I read 20 of every day. That's like three paragraphs about whatever. These are probably like, these are from long, academic, yeah. academic journals, serious stuff. I never I could understand. You can, under, you can understand that they're, they're peer reviewed, yeah. you know, they've gone through the process. So basically like almost 250 like books, I guess, or like, Small books. Well, I mean, my average article is probably about 10 to 15 pages. Yeah, that's so, a small book. <laughs> so they're not, not that long. I do remember a side note about small books. I For DeSalvo's senior paper, one of the driving reasons for me to pick the book that I picked was that it was only 80 pages because yeah. it was super small, and I was super pumped about that. <laughs> but now thinking about 250 15-page articles is daunting to say the least. Yeah, it's it, it, it's fun. I mean, to me, this whole right. process is fun. Uh, I I've, I think I'm officially done reading about the digital divide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gone through over a hundred articles specifically about that. Um, I've taken notes, so I have a, a, over a hundred pages of actual notes that I've typed uh, from these articles. Uh, I then took all those notes and broke them up into different categories in order to kind of help me analyze it. Mm-hmm. Um, so just the, the basics of the digital divide uh, started, it really came into to focus in the mid-1990s. That's when the term really, really took off. And it was talking about you have people that have access to the internet and computers and people who don't. Mm-hmm. And that was the divide. Uh, and at that time, it was really based on things like uh, socioeconomic status, racial status, um, ethnicity, gender, age, different things like that. Is this like, this is like mainly in the U.S. that this was kind of well, brewing? that's what I'm looking at. Okay. Uh, but you can find a digital divide in every country. You can find a digital divide between countries. It, it, there's so many different ways you can, you can, you can approach it. Um, so over time, 
A lot of people said, well, with the prevalence of smartphones and mobile internet, we don't have a digital divide anymore. Everybody's got cell phones, so, you know, there is no digital divide. And a lot of people believe that. But uh, Hargitay said, well, now we're looking at a second level digital divide. And Van Dyke and Hacker, two, two authors that uh, I get a lot of information from, they said, well, you have to look at what access really means. And so they said there are four different categories of access we have to look at. There's your material access. Do you really have a computer and internet access? Then there's mental access. And you find issues of mental access usually with older adults who are like, I don't really want to do this. I don't, I don't really have to do this. But then the things that I'm, I'm beginning to read more about and probably will focus on looks at the skills access and the usage, usage access. So there was this big push. Oh, we've got to get the internet and technology in schools. And so you had federal legislation and, you know, got E-rate. Oh, schools get discounts on the internet. Let's get the internet in schools. And so schools got the internet. Well, that's great. That took care for the most part of the material access. But now you look at the skills access, what's actually being done. You know, you have some schools where kids are creating PowerPoints and using Excel and they're looking at all sorts of data and they're creating things. That's great. Other schools, they're using that exact same technology for browsing the internet, for doing worksheets online. So you see this huge literal divide in the skills. And of course, the skills access is going to impact the usage access. Well, if you don't have the skills, you're not going to be able to use the technology for what it really needs to be used for. And that also has implications as you begin looking at jobs and workforce. Companies are looking for people that have skills. And if you don't get those skills in college, you're not going to get those skills, have those skills for the job. Well, you don't get the skills of college, probably because you didn't get them in high school or even elementary. I mean, this, this literally goes all the way down to kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So lots and lots of information, lots of different ways to be able to look at it. Uh, so I'm pretty much saturated on, on that. What is the um, explicit difference, I guess, in what you're looking at um, between, uh, you know, like a six-year-old mastering an iPad and, uh, and then actually growing up and or maybe like a six-year-old mastering an iPad compared to a 17-year-old who's about to get a job and doesn't know how to, how to use technology for the job, I guess. Prinsky had this, uh, this book he wrote about digital natives and digital immigrants. And Prinsky said that anybody born after 1980 is a digital native. Okay, And a digital native, they know everything about technology. It's integrated into their lives. You know, they're, it's just natural for them. If you were born before 1980, you've immigrated into using technology and it's not natural. And people, people ran to that book and were like, this is awesome. But as you start really looking at it, he didn't have any, any real data. Mm -hmm. in your empirical data. And what we're, what we're really seeing is, yeah, people born after 1980 use technology a lot. But as I talk about the skills, you'll see a lot of individuals know how to post on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. They're great on social media. 
but if they need to use a computer at a job, well, how, how, do, I, how do I do this? I mean, I would have students, you talked about the, the physics paper, all right, you need to have one inch margins, blah, blah, blah. How do I, how do I change margins? <laughs> oh, you can do all this stuff on social media, but mm -hmm. you know, basic things like that, you don't know how to do. So that that's, that's a, another issue that people are saying, even outside of the divide between people that haven't been exposed to the skills and those that have been exposed to it, You've got a generation that people think they know how to use the device. You give any any, any baby a phone or an iPad, mm -hmm. and they'll they'll learn how to how to call people, how to do everything. So true. If that's just natural, but that doesn't really translate to the higher order thinking skills that are are being produced through technology. So what what is the specific great div uh, digital divide that uh, that you're talking about? Because you, you said that there's a bunch, you've researched and read a bunch of information on the digital divide. What is it? Uh, is it like in a, a certain age group or is it a certain technology? Is it a certain geographical location? Specifically, I'll be looking at um, high school students and probably middle school, elementary, elementary too, but you, you're going to see more of it in high school and looking at the lack of skills. Um, Kind of getting into my methodology. This is all proposed. Uh, I have to wait till my my dissertation chair, you know, kind of says, "Hey, I really like it. Go ahead and do it." Okay. Uh, I'm looking at doing what's called a hermeneutic phenomenology. Okay. Wow. Which basically means I'll I'll be doing interviews. Okay. So I want to interview college students that were impacted by the digital divide. So kind of retrospectively looking to see, well, in high school, I'll experience this, this, and this, and then I'll be able to interpret those, those interviews and say, well, this is what is really happening with the digital divide. Um, you find data, you find lots of numbers that says, well, this percentage has devices, this percentage learns this, this percentage doesn't do that. But uh, I want to be able to give voice to people that have done it to kind of give a different perspective on what's really happening with the digital divide. And that's like students who um, both have this certain set of skills and don't have the certain skills, set of skills. And they might have the skills now, but I want to focus on those that feel like they did not receive those skills training those skills or the training at all throughout their what is, education. What is the realistic um, expectation for teaching students the, I guess, the next level, the, the little bit higher level of skills on technology um, over just the web browsing and turning it on and off and swiping around and all that sort of thing? Well, the big thing that people are talking about now is how do you prepare students for jobs that haven't been created? Hmm. And so, it, it's, it's really about analysis and creation. As you start looking at higher, higher order thinking, can you analyze information that you're being presented with uh, in the era of quote unquote fake news and all this information that's mm -hmm. just out there? Well, how can you really analyze this information to know if, if it's true? You know, the, the number of people that, that read articles from The Onion or Babylon Bee and think it's real news, like, wait, no, that, that's satire. You can't, you can't figure that out. <laughs> you know, so it, it's, it's difficult to necessarily pick a technology and say we're going to teach kids all about this technology. 
it's more about teaching them how to approach and work with technology. Um, from my undergraduate degree in computer engineering, we trained on the 8086 processor, which was one of Intel's first you know, uh, IBM or PC-based processors. At the time we were training on that, the Pentium processor was out. So people were like, well, why are y'all using these old chips if there's a Pentium processor? Well, when you learn the basics of how the 8086 works, it translates very well to the Pentium. Yeah, it's more advanced, but you know the basic architecture. You understand the foundation, how it was built and why it works. So if you look at the Pentium chip, while it does not look exactly the same, you have an understanding of how it should work. Mm -hmm. It should be the same thing with technology. It doesn't matter if it's a PC or a Mac or a specific program, getting the basic understanding of, okay, this is not just what technology is, but how it can be used and how it should help me. But isn't the, since technology is changing so fast and even the way, not just the technology itself, but the way that we're using it is changing it so fast. What, how do you set up kids uh, or anyone to learn at a certain point in the timeline of technology and then expect it to apply for the future use of it? That's, that's difficult. Um, I, I would say that, I mean, is it, is it, is it, is it, is the digital divide going to be, um, erased at a certain point or is it going to just be an ever continuing education thing that people are just going to have to go through? It's, it's, it's never going to be erased. Okay. It's uh, never going to be erased. I, I, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's not breaking news. That's, that's not, you know, a bomb. It, it's never going to be erased because we will always have divides in different areas, uh, different areas of life. But just as quote unquote education has progressed, we have to progress in teaching about and with technology. Um, uh, there, there was a picture I saw a long time ago. People were like, the pencil used to be revolutionary, but imagine if you had a pencil lab where students had to go and get a pencil from a lab in order to use it. Well, that's what we did with computers. You had a computer lab that, that you would go to. So it, it's not necessarily just, all right, this is the specific te technology. This is how, it, how it's used. It's learning more so about technology. You know, we talked about AI earlier. Well, artificial intelligence is going to be a bigger and bigger part of our everyday lives. Not saying that we should teach AI to students, but they should be able to understand and discuss the pros and the cons. They should be exposed to what AI really is. So it's not necessarily teaching, when we talk about skills, the exact skill that's necessary, but teaching how to acquire those skills yourself, teaching how to vet people, whether or not they have those skills or not. It, it, it's learning about, about it in, in much broader terms than the specific skill itself. So what is, uh, what, head, what headway have you been doing in the, um, or I guess what's the exact location of where you are in your dissertation preparation? Uh, I've pretty much exhausted everything about the digital divide. Uh, I've moved on to a methodology of getting a whole bunch of articles about 
phenomenology and hermeneutics and then hermeneutic phenomenology, which is really difficult mm -hmm. because phenomenology is really a philosophy um, that uh, is traced back to a German philosopher, Herschel. And then it kind of branched off looking at Heidegger and uh, Gadamer. So I'm reading articles about philosophy, which it's gotten really, really deep. Uh, I'm sure. From time to time, it's like, wait, what? <laughs> oh, really? Oh. So uh, process processing all of that. Um, moving now to getting to the point to where I can get full approval from my dissertation chair that, okay, I like your topic, which he does like my topic. So then he has to approve the particular direction that I want to move in, mm -hmm. methodology, um, all of that stuff. Uh, what's the, what's the, what's the exact methodology and direction that you're going to be going in with the interviews of the, uh, I guess, uh, to articulate a little bit more on because I'm curious now that you mentioned that you've been reading all the philosophy and stuff, it is the actual dissertation that you produce going to be more of that sign of how um, we can, the theory of what we can establish to kind of help this digital divide? Or are you more focused, or is it going to be more focused on, here's what these students have experienced, this is what I think we should do? With the phenomenology, you are trying to uncover the essence of a phenomenon. And so the phenomenon that I've chosen is the digital divide. And through the phenomenology, I will take the interviews of people that have experienced the digital divide and the hermeneutic part of it is interpreting. Uh, there was an article by Crowther that talks about crafting stories. So being able to take that information and crafting a story from it with the hopes of, yeah, people know that there's a digital divide. They, they know the numbers, but being able to, in essence, put a voice to that to say, all right, these 72, there's random number, 72% that have experienced this, this is what it really meant. This is what really happened. This is how it set them back. This is what they've had to overcome. This is their experience with that phenomenon. And then being able to tie that into educational leadership, whether or not you know we're looking at changing teacher prep programs, because if you're expecting teachers to play a role in this, well, they need to be proficient in mm -hmm. technology as well. And a lot of teachers aren't. Mm -hmm. So technology usually kind of link, favors the young uh, in the mastery. Yeah, which, which goes back to the digital native immigrant thing, right? Right, right. right. But which, which is. Do you think that? Do you think that will become less and less of have less and less of an effect as we go into the next 40, 50 years? It will. Once that everyone alive is a digital native. We will because I really think some of the people that are best with technology are actually immigrants. Um, you know, basically you, you would be looking at people that are 39, 40, somewhere around there. And a lot of people that are leading technology companies that are, you know, helping per se, those who are starting some of the, the, the new tech startups, they're around that age. So they're not afraid of, it. they weren't born into it, but they've embraced it, uh, very well. But I think it's a cop out to say, 
that just because this person is young that they are native to technology. Just because they've been around it doesn't mean that they are necessarily comfortable and able to to use it as as should be done. Mm-hmm. It's um, I mean, it, it's really like you're not native to anything, really. I guess when you enter the world and mm-hmm. you learn how to pick up stuff, you learn how to talk and all the rest of it. Yeah. And like you mentioned earlier, now kids are, um, I mean, like my nephews are two and three. And they can't even form a full sentence properly, but can whip out an iPhone and pull up YouTube and swipe through videos and watch yeah. videos and all that sort of thing. Um, so I, I was going to ask too, what do you think? You mentioned earlier that the digital the digital divide as an idea kind of sprung up in the mid '90s. Has the divide itself, and I don't even know if you can quantify, but has the divide itself? widened or gotten smaller as the because originally it was access and no access like you said mm-hmm. now it's more of the specific uses of it is that is that divide smaller or larger than the access divide depends on who you read okay um most people <laughs> according would say, to you what would you say i would say you, I, I would say that it's it's wider um because is it because okay continue i I would say because you have more ways of looking at it okay at at first it was just yes i have it no i don't have it now it's okay yes i have it but no i don't really know what to do with it or well yes i have it yes i know what to do with it but or it's not productive uh, or beneficial to me i'm just using it to look at news or something instead of being productive with it so what what's the um what's the is is there a main driver for that that nowadays is it the is it the uh um uh what is the word the is it that the u.s has the most access it's the richest country people are you know there's more technological advances here than elsewhere where is the divide most um, exaggerated in the skills aspect? Oh, you're probably looking along socioeconomic lines. Okay. Um, That's where most of the research in the U.S. is. Actually, not the majority, but a lot of the authors that I've read aren't even from the U.S. Uh, Van Dyke, uh, Van Dersen, Van Lahr, are from the Netherlands and they are huge in this research and they're not in education. They're either in sociology or communication sciences. So their their perspective isn't even in terms of, of education. So it, a, a lot of what you see is along socioeconomic lines. Um, some of the articles talk about it along uh, racial and ethnic lines. Um, some people deal with it, and I'm not really interested in it, but according to age, so obviously you're going to have a, a difference uh, there, and also uh, along lines of gender. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of taking an, an idea that has shown up in education, but really trying to bring it, the, the idea more mainstream in education and use the body of work to really kind of focus in on the issues with the digital divide in education. So what's the um, step after you complete 
the dissertation? Is it, are you, are you thinking about pursuing that specific topic in a professional capacity afterwards? Uh, hopefully at a college university somewhere. Um, kind of more research based, uh, doing research on that. Uh, that I think that will always be in my back pocket, mm -hmm. uh, as my main research area, but really kind of looking at teacher development and how that can play in teacher development, whether or not that's looking at um, teacher curriculum or being an administrative position in a college of education, you know, helping to shape uh, the, the way teachers are trained moving forward. Is that the is that going to be the most effective way to kind of um, not bridge the gap um, per se, but to help close it as much as possible uh, the, through through teachers and education system? The smart answer would be, I'll have to wait until I finish right. the presentation to, to say <laughs> right. that. Um, but honestly, that's just one way. Uh, the literature also talks about, okay, we've increased usage at school, but you have situations where schools have lots of technology, and then you've got kids that are getting off the school bus and stopping at McDonald's in order to do their work because they don't have internet at home. Okay. So yes, yes, they're getting skills, right? But they don't have the internet at home, so that's a whole nother, you know, aspect of the digital divide. So there, education is one way of, of approaching it, but also educating people in general so that even in their home life, they'll be able to uh, have access. I'm curious to know, in, is there any um, uh, predictions or uh, thoughts about where technology could be headed in any of this research that you've been doing? I guess in terms of like what's on the horizon and possible problems that could come up with it? From the digital divide, not really. Um, the, the biggest biggest thing, I guess you say future, future looking that I've seen is talking about uh, more so internet access, where it's not just internet access anymore, but broadband internet access and being sure that people have the speed necessary um, to use whatever technology it is that they have. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, it's it's not really, I don't want to say it, it's been stagnant, but you don't really have that many new articles that are really looking at, okay, this is, this is how the divide is affecting us as we move forward. It's all kind of, we've still got these issues and as technology increases as it becomes faster and better we'll begin to see a, a widening of the gap because if you didn't have it at first and now it's you know Moore's law right increasing exponentially right how are you going to catch up right so that that that's kind of the the problem moving forward you know is how how will people be able to catch up what's the biggest thing um that holds uh, people back from catching up like with uh or what is the what is the critical critical thing that once they understand it or learn it, helps propel them um, forward. I mean, because we talked about earlier, like it helps to know how to do an Excel formula, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, and and compared to posting a status on Facebook, what what is the I guess like the base level of where that skills category where you start determining if people have the skills necessary to succeed in the workplace? What where's that baseline? 
I don't think that's really been identified uh, because the there are so many different different jobs and arenas that require different skills. Um, I, I think it's more so about having the ability to adapt and adjust. Uh, that was a joke we all we always had in undergrad was, yeah, I've got a degree in engineering. All that means is that my company can teach me what I need to know. <laughs> it doesn't mean that I know everything. I can just be taught what is what is necessary. So I, I think a lot of what you're going to see is at, at colleges and universities, are they requiring things of their students that translate to workable skills? Uh, and I think that the, the workforce will need to communicate that to colleges and other programs. Hey, this is what we're looking for. This, mm -hmm. this is what we need, you know, these applicants. To That's kind of, that sounds very familiar to a couple things that I hear recently of people saying, um, you know, you shouldn't, not everyone should go get a four-year degree. There's a lot of people that should go to trade schools. Yes. And then on top of that, the whole thing of kids graduate high school and, you know, the cliche, don't know how to balance a checkbook. Not that anyone really does that as much anymore, but the principle still rings true. They don't know anything about taxes. They don't know anything about owning a property or anything like that. Is that, that sounds very similar to some of the same arguments on, on those fronts is the practicality aspect of technology is really what the, sounds like the divide is yeah, as it, a general matter. And it, that, that is lacking. Um, and first of all, I do agree. Everybody does not need to go to college. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's it's not for everybody. It's not necessary for everybody. And to force people to do that in order to have the skills necessary, that that's that's just ludicrous. But for those who don't, there still has to be a way for them to get the skills necessary. Mm -hmm. You know and. If they can get those skills, well, why can't people that in in school get get those skills? Right. Cool. Um, I think I just like we took a deep dive, and so now I'm just like I want to learn more, but my brain has like worked a whole bunch to get to this point. I feel like I feel like hopefully people who are listening enjoyed the talk. I definitely enjoyed hearing all of the details about it, but. I, I can't imagine what you're, if you're sitting down and reading about this stuff all day, every day, then you gotta be like exhausted after doing it. <laughs> lots of you coffee. Said, you said it's a lot of fun yeah. too. Lots of coffee, uh, it, it is fun. I mean, when, when you, it's kind of like when you're interested in something, I mean, I, it's something I want to learn about. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, they say in the course of your dissertation, you become an expert in that area. Well, unfortunately I've chosen a, an area so large that you, you really can't be an expert mm -hmm. in every single facet of it, but hopefully that can narrow it down to one specific area and be an expert in that. What's your, I had a call, also a question. You, you, um, how, what percentage of your education right now in the EDD program is going to be online? And what are your thoughts in general about, because there's now you can get a PhD or maybe not a PhD, you can get a master's. I've seen a hundred percent online. Mm -hmm. Is that, a good thing? <laughs> my master's was, I'd say about 60% online. My EDD, there'll probably be only two or three classes that I'll take completely online. 
Uh, it is good and it's bad. Uh, there is something to be said about the personal interaction and the academic discussions. Uh, we do have a lot of discussion boards in our classes. And while those do help with writing, it's just different than sitting across from somebody and having a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's also different for an advanced degree because really the majority of what is done is reading and writing anyway. Um, so you don't really miss out on that. But I, I think to, to say that the program is complete 100% online, at least for a doctoral program, I think that's, that's really pushing it mm -hmm. because you really miss the academic conversation. Mm -hmm. And even in our you know, two and a half day classes, it's eight to five discussion, 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 discussion. I mean, the, wow. the lectures are discussions, you know, going, going back and forth with the professor, you know, asking questions, giving feedback, just entering in, in, in these conversations. So there, there is a role for the online portion. I mean, it, that kind of ties in with the globalization of education mm -hmm. where anybody that has the skills yeah. and the access, you know, can, can get into it. But there, there are certain parts of it that it's still kind of working to, to, to see. Is, is there any, have you seen any data, just my curiosity, of failure rates compared to online um, access or usage percentage of online, as the percentage of online schooling goes up, are there failure rates that either go up or down? I haven't seen anything uh, with that exact correlation. Um, well, yeah. my, my like naive initial reaction would be that failure rates would be higher mainly because and especially for you like you know undergraduate type but the less mature human being would be more inclined to not put in the work to get it done if it's all up to them well in part part of that is usually you see with the online programs it's usually not undergrad it's usually masters or doctoral mm -hmm. and there's the intrinsic motivation that the people in those programs have to where I need this for my job or I need this to better myself. So it's a little bit different than, oh, I have to go right. to college. So they kind of have that desire and they kind of push through it a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, that makes sense. So that that's that's one thing that I have seen about that intrinsic motivation. Do you ever think there's going to be a time when we can go to a place and sit in a chair and they hook up some wires to us, to our head sort of thing, and we download information directly onto our brains? Isn't that what our cell phones are for with Google? <laughs> true. Very good point. That is true. I am a lot smarter now because of Google than I was 10 years ago. It, but the, the, the thing with that is even with Google, you still have to know how to process the information. You still come across the Onion articles and yeah. all of the, and, all that. And, and, and people have always said, oh, I can't, I just can use Google. That's all I need. To, I don't have to really know stuff. And I'm like, well, I said, you do have a point. But how would you like to go into surgery and your doctor pulls up a video on YouTube and is using... No, you want somebody that can tell you all the medical lingo mm -hmm. and demonstrate that they have the knowledge without having to look at an external device. Strong point. Yeah. Yeah, strong point. Well, Jesse Mullen, 
it feels weird calling you by your first name, but I appreciate you spending some time. Uh, why don't you tell everybody what your Instagram is so they can follow your journey? My Instagram is jesse.moland, J-E-S-S-E dot M-O-L-A-N-D. I'm also on Twitter at Jesse Moland. Sweet. Is there anything else that you'd like to say to our huge crowd of 12 listeners, 15 listeners? <laughs> well, I would tell you, keep tuning in to this podcast because as Chase learns, you'll learn too. And I've learned a lot today. And I know half of this discussion was an academic discussion, and I very much appreciate it. <laughs> I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode, episode two of my podcast. And again, thanks to Mr. Moland. Uh, it's still a little weird to call you by your first name. But thanks again, Mr. Moland, for joining me and sharing a bit of insight into your teaching career and your studies. And if you're listening and you are interested in what we talked about, you should definitely follow Jesse Mullen on Instagram. His handle is jesse.moland. He's posting almost every day or every other day about some of the things that he's reading and this research that he's doing. Um, like you said, it's kind of his, his journal, uh, but I find it interesting to follow. And thanks again for listening to this episode that was once again sponsored by Raising Canes. And uh, if I just made you hungry, you're welcome. Thank you.